0: Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ, I'm Jerome McDonald. On Mondays, we feature our series, Puerto Struction about Puerto Rico's effort to rebound from Hurricane Maria. Some of the people who've gone to Puerto Rico after the hurricane are cryptocurrency blockchain entrepreneurs who think they can make Puerto Rico into a blockchain hub. Before we play the documentary, we're going to spend a moment getting to know why people think blockchain technology is the future. With me is Gina Peters. She is a lecturer in the Department of Economics at the University of Chicago and a research fellow at the Cambridge Center for Alternative Finance. Thanks for joining us.
1: Thanks for inviting me.
0: Um, a lot of people don't really understand or grasp. I mean, I can kind of intellectually understand what blockchain technology is, but um, can you explain it uh, in simple terms for people?
1: Sure. So blockchain, at the end of the day, is a kind of database, which means it's trying to store, record, transfer, and share data and information. And if you think about the value and the importance of data sharing nowadays, right, that's, that's a big part of the economy. So for a new technology to come along in this space right now makes a lot of people excited. <laughs>
0: And Bitcoin is the thing that is most associated with blockchain technology. And the idea is that it it makes it secure. There is a security value here.
1: Correct. So uh, blockchain uh, was around before Bitcoin, decentralized ledger, um, distributed ledger technology. Um, But Bitcoin made blockchain famous and showed that there was this value in you could scale it up to some degree and use it to record these transactions between people.
0: And now there's a lot of talk about it becoming the next Internet. How do you go from being a, a secure, encrypted technology program to becoming the next Internet that cures poverty? That um, There's all sorts of claims, and we're going to hear them in the documentary that comes up, about what this technology can do. It can bring finance to everybody on the planet, uh, secure financing. Um, what is that?
1: So I'm not sure if you were around when the dot-com bubble hit back in the 90s right you had similar claims about the internet and so what was it back then it was connecting people it was the information transfer between people that normally you couldn't get access to blockchain is trying to do the same thing the difference between blockchain and what the internet ultimately did is that with the internet you still have centralized um, nodes individuals companies that control the information flow with blockchain you get away from that you can potentially have nobody out there that needs to verify the information depending on how it's structured
0: it seems like a lot of the people who are attracted to blockchain and cryptocurrencies and these things in nature are interested in that aspect they want to get they want to knock out the financial houses of the governments and have kind of a laissez-faire Universe where blockchain is, um, you know, eliminates the middleman in everything.
1: Yes, that's absolutely true. Um, what I find funny in my own work when I study cryptocurrencies is that actually we're seeing these the rise of new middlemen, take, coming in and and setting themselves up with exchanges and being quite powerful as intermediaries. Actually, so we're not seeing this decentralized promise necessarily being fulfilled in this space.
0: And from what I understand, a lot of countries are um, trying to capture blockchain technology as hubs and things. There's an article in the New York Times uh, today about the countries that are setting themselves up for this. And it's all the countries that seem to be um, into kind of loosey-goosey financing. It's Bermuda, it's Malta, it's Liechtenstein, these little countries that set themselves up. Uh, (laughs) And there's also gigantic financial institutions that are – all, all the in big investment banks all are sniffing around and have experts in this technology and, and what it does. So, so are, the, are the old people really getting edged out by the new people or are they just getting ready to capture?
1: Well, if you think about, again, the Valley of Information, this is a multibillion-dollar potential industry where there's a lot of people making a lot of promises trying to think of, oh, how can I change this industry if you don't need an intermediary anymore? Right, so lots of promises, lots of money to be made, lots of tax revenue potentially, lots of billionaires potentially right that are out there, so it it makes people very excited, and there's a lot of of hype
0: Can you think of an instance where it's it goes beyond? Um, cryptocurrencies, because it seems like every time you you hear about this, it's like, well, we've got a new cryptocurrency here, and we're gonna we're gonna be the new cryptocurrency. Ours is better than the old one, and that seems to be the the main function of this technology now. But is there a, another purpose you could explain to us that would make us understand why people are so pumped about this?
1: So I think. What we are seeing now with blockchain in this next phase of development is you're not moving beyond cryptocurrencies, right? We're also seeing things called tokens, uh, which we divide into security tokens and utility tokens. Those are the two most popular categories. So security tokens look a lot like securities, financial securities, right? So they could be indexed to things outside of the blockchain and then promise you some amount of profit in the future, for example. Utility tokens are tokens that are being issued by companies and that you can use to pay for their service. So you don't have to use U.S. dollars. You can use this utility token that the company has issued you to pay for the service. So we're seeing a lot of work in that utility token um, sphere right now because companies can then issue those in exchange for capital. It's 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 what's called an ICO. It's a common ICO. uh, initial uh, coin offering
0: so it's part investment and part business
1: yes absolutely
0: all right i can see where that would be uh, attractive Um, do do you (laughs) but um is this something that real users want do you think because it just sounds complicated to me i just want to do a transaction (laughs) in the common currency i don't want to be dealing with everybody's unit.
1: Yes. That's and I think that's something that's being overlooked right now is you don't want to have 10,000 different currencies. I think there's a, a big hope that there becomes a global currency that arises out of all of this uh, that then links together all of these systems. But I think it's just too young right now to be able to say which one that's going to be.
0: Um. How do you react to um, the people involved here? Uh, there's so many of them. There's uh, so many players out there. How do you when, – when you look at them, what, what, do you, what do you think?
1: I think there are some really good people, and I think there are some people who are really trying to improve um, the state of the world with this technology, so people thinking about healthcare records, thinking about voting records, all of these things. At the same time, I do think that there are some – People who are trying to get rich quick, and there are some definite Ponzi schemes out there, and people just selling nonsense.
0: Uh, well, explain more about uh, voting records and healthcare records. How would that work?
1: So, if you think about <clears throat> some of the the biggest um, stumbling blocks, can be sharing health records between, you know, your doctor and the hospital, and s- partly because their systems have to talk to each other. Right? So if you can create a blockchain where the, the information doesn't belong to either one of those and just gets shared easily, that could make your healthcare records be easier to share. But, of course, you've got the problem of confidentiality. How do you deal with that? Right, So it's a nice idea, but now in reality, how do you actually implement something like that? With voting records, um, I think especially after some of the, the recent election things around the world, like you always have fear of voting tampering. Right. So blockchain is tamper resistant. It's not tamper proof. People will say you can't edit the blockchain. You can't change the the blockchain. That's actually not true. It's it's harder to change the blockchain. But then you can have electronic voting records that's less susceptible to manipulation.
0: And the reason why it's harder to change or manipulate the blockchain is it's being stored in it's a transparent thing that is in everybody's computer. You can anybody who's involved with it.
1: That is part of the reason, yes, essentially, you need to make it part of the security that you get from it has to do with incentives and but and part of it is to do with the fact that it's stored everywhere. There's not one master record that is the truth uh,
0: Do you have any good idea where the, where all this is going? I mean, you seem to have a level head <laughs> how does How does this all work out?
1: well, I think it's it's going to be fun to see where it goes. It, there's so many ideas and so many dreams out there right now. Uh, I, I, I don't want to comment on any one project individually, but I think there are some really good and interesting projects out there. Um, I, th- I think there will be some things that change, but I don't know how much of it we'll necessarily see.
0: Uh, Gina Peters is a lecturer in the Department of Economics at the University of Chicago and a research fellow at the Cambridge Center for Alternative Finance. Thanks a lot for joining me and talking a bit about blockchain technology and where it's going. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonnell. Before the break, we talked about how blockchain technology has become a hot topic around the world. Every Monday through the end of hurricane season, we're presenting the series Puerto Rican Reconstruction. This week, we're bringing you the story of a group of wealthy entrepreneurs who are looking to kickstart a blockchain revolution on the island of Puerto Rico. The movement's leader, Brock Pierce, was recently profiled in Rolling Stone, and here are a few of the things he had to say.
2: I've committed to giving away basically a lot more than everything I have this second because I don't need anything. I'm trying to help Puerto Rico and I, it starts by empowering the Puerto Rican people. We have to make those 2.8 million people's lives a lot better.
3: I was watching videos on Facebook about Puerto Rico. Yeah. Just the devastation. I see Brock's article in the New York Times and I'm like, I'm going. I don't want someone thinking this is a gold rush
2: because it's not. It, can't, it can't. We're in, a, we're in an economic war zone. Brock is bringing all these people here. There's this blockchain movement. Yeah, the most bad things happen behind closed doors. Blockchain is truth. Blockchain is light. It can be that good all the time. Look at that sun. Hallelujah.
0: The BBC's Rafael Achebe has been reporting on the blockchain boon in Puerto Rico. In this BBC documentary, he explains the technology and its social effects.
4: Blockchain is the technology behind cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin. Basically, it's a chain of code stored on a network of computers, like a shared spreadsheet. While people differ on the extent that blockchain will change your life, most agree that it will change everybody's lives in some form. Just listen when I asked some of the people we meet to describe the blockchain in three words. Decentralization. Transparency. Efficiency.
5: Permanent distributed ledger.
2: Truth. Transparency and light.
5: Innovative. Fair. Honesty. Digital freedom. Hope. Trust. Transparency.
4: Although some governments are wary of the blockchain, the Puerto Rican government seems very supportive. We talked to the island's economic development secretary, Manuel Lavoy.
6: Blockchain is a digital ledger. And the idea is that you minimize the intervention of third parties, that you promote efficiency, decentralization of transactions, and at the end of the day, you also reduce cost. So it is really an application. It's a, it's a, it's a new technology that allows to really enhance transactions.
4: We'll meet some people who are developing real-life uses for blockchain on the island later, For now, let's focus on the situation of Puerto Rico.
5: We have not experienced an event of this magnitude in our modern history. I am begging,
7: begging anyone that can hear us to save us from dying. If anybody out there is listening to us, we are dying.
4: On September 2017, Puerto Rico was hit by two major hurricanes, Irma and Maria, which left a trail of devastation that the island is still trying to overcome. Almost 70 people lost their lives and the entire island was left without electricity. To date, almost 150,000 people left for the mainland U.S. If you add to that the $72 billion debt crisis the island had before the storms, you get the recipe for disaster. Secretary Lavoie.
6: What we have seen is that many, many people discover Puerto Rico after Maria because there's been kind of a global conscience about Puerto Rico, which is a silver lining blessing after, you know, the disaster.
4: While Brock Pierce did not discover Puerto Rico through Maria, he did arrive after the hurricane, saying he wants to help. And he has inspired a group of people, many from the blockchain space, to do the same. What brought you to Puerto Rico? Brock Pierce. I've relocated my life to Puerto Rico because
8: Brock inspired me to do so. Brock's here and he chose to be here and he's the most influential person in the whole crypto
4: world. So why is Brock in Puerto Rico?
2: Puerto Rico has had a special place in my life and in my heart for most of it. All of my adult life anyway. You know, it's like, what is it that I want to do with my life? What next? And it's like, I want to make a difference. And so the question is, where do you go to make a difference? Mm. I could go live in London and like go do crazy things in the financial market. But it's like, where can I have the most impact? When the hurricane hit, it's like it just, I said, time to go. And then I I tell all your friends, you know, time to go. Rock
4: Pierce is a former child actor. He later went on to make a ton of money in the online gaming industry and then in the cryptocurrency world. And many people from the crypto space followed his call to come to Puerto Rico. Someone who was exploring moving his project to Puerto Rico is Quinn Eaker. He's a very tall guy, has long braided beard matching his hair, and he's all dressed in white. He's made money with cryptocurrencies, but he's a different type of businessman.
8: My whole world was sustainability.
4: I lived for 15 years of my life without money. Quinn has a commune-style eco-farm in Texas called the Garden of Eden. He's considering replicating it here. If things go the way they're going right now, under Bro- uh, Brock's ideas, your ideas, where do you see Puerto Rico five years from now? 10 years five
8: from years now, from now, I see Puerto Rico as sort of like, almost like the new Rome, like in the glory golden age where everybody's talking about Puerto Rico. And if you look at the stats, like, oh my God, Puerto Rico from went from this basically like... A million people left Puerto Rico since the hurricane. They lost a fourth of their population. There's hundreds of thousands of homes that are just abandoned. Like, this is, like, the lowest of the low of Puerto Rico. The growth of Puerto Rico from now in five years is going to be the biggest growth of any place in the entire world. So this is the best place
4: in the entire world to be right now, is Puerto Rico. And the Puerto Rican government seems to agree. Economic Development Secretary Manuel Lavoie.
6: We believe that This is an unbelievable opportunity. If there is a time to invest in Puerto Rico, it is now. And blockchain is a very key component. Blockchain is already transforming. Not only in Puerto Rico, it's going to be transforming everything in the the world. And not only Puerto Rico should, should stay relevant, but should be in the front right there leading. And at the same time, because of the hurricanes, the federal government is going to be spending billions of dollars over the next five, seven years. In reconstructing housing, infrastructure and blockchain definitely has to be part of that.
4: And some have already developed plans to use this new technology in sectors like solar power, insurance, water metering. They say blockchain's transparent and efficient nature can improve the way things are done. Brock understands its potential after his years working with blockchain, but he also knows it's not a fix-all. And he's careful not to oversell the crypto utopia narrative. What has changed since you arrived here in Puerto Rico? Well, I mean, for me, my whole life, I mean, it's a big commitment. <laughs> China
2: changes everything. But in terms for Puerto Rico, which is what really matters, not nearly enough because
4: it's the early days. This is the beginning of an Call it an opportunity. Can you tell us a bit about how you envision the blockchain and cryptocurrencies uh, helping out Puerto Rico?
2: Yeah. So one of the aspects or use cases for the blockchain is the, the financial use case. There are 3 billion or so people on the planet that have no access to financial services. But this is a technology that has the potential to democratize the global financial system in a way where every human being on the planet will have equal access. And it's the least fortunate billions of people that are going to stand to benefit the most. And, you know, that's, that's a wonderful thing. I mean, you're, you're seeing a rebalancing of the scales
4: your relationship with the community and with the local government how has that come along
2: you know the government's been very receptive i mean most of the governments around the world are fighting to get us there i mean they're willing to do anything i think that most of the people at least i personally interacted with are like wow this is kind of amazing this is was not should not have been part of our story you know to, this is quite the blessing you know you know when you have to the, top technologists in the world coming and like trying to build things there and teach and invest and these are not bad things these are good things especially in times of need Uh, a lot of people that are showing up uh, in service hoping to make a difference and I think that we're going to see some really amazing uh, results over the course of the next year because it takes a little bit of time you know to, to figure out where to help you have to listen like tomorrow I'm most excited about the day of listening you
4: you can't just show up thinking you know what to do Based on limited information, you have to engage. You're listening to the BBC World Service. I'm Rafaela Buchaibe, and I'm in the east part of Puerto Rico about to attend a day of listening, where a group of crypto entrepreneurs and tech students are meeting with locals to talk about how blockchain might help rebuild the island. However, not many locals attended, possibly because the venue ended up being in an upmarket seaside hotel. Perhaps not the best choice of location to engage with your everyday Puerto Rican.'ve
3: come together and empowered the students.
4: But after an hour of discussions, some locals intervene and things get very, very lively.
1: Hi everyone. I'm so glad that you just mentioned community and getting to know the local people. Um, because this sounds to me like a way to start redesigning the society here towards more technological,
9: like a more technological society. But what I don't see here are the main stakeholders of Puerto Rico. There's a lot of people in Puerto Rico who don't
0: think technology is the way to go. Uh, the, the, the reason that we're here is to try to, to bring some more stakeholders in. And it's not the technology that, that solves all of the problems. And, and, and for for us, there's a lot of misunderstanding about the technology. So we're, we're, we're here to, to answer any questions.
10: Hi, I'm Puerto Rican. We're talking about bringing technology, but what do you eat when a hurricane comes? What do you eat? You're not gonna eat a microchip. You're not gonna eat the technology. We need food. And yes, I do believe in technology because yes, the world is changing. But when what you're talking about is bringing in a group of people that don't fundamentally understand who we are, that is a problem because I'm watching decisions made for me when I can't even make a decision over my land. And before before you came onto that panel, I didn't see now one person representing me. It was four light-skinned men and that's Puerto Rico nowadays. Once somebody sees our paradise, all you see is extraction. We're an extraction economy. But when I'm talking about somebody else coming here and then hiring us, how are we removing ourselves from the plantation owner and the slaves? Colonial. Colonialism. And I'm, and I'm making people feel uncomfortable because that's our reality.
3: So, thank you for bringing up that, which is the big elephant elephant in the room, right? So, colonization. It's, it's very important to learn, and that's why I believe, really, in the blockchain education, because there's a certain philosophy behind blockchain about rep- everyone re- being represented, about consensus. I know that's very, like, 10 years in the future, but we want to bring that here. And when I say we, I mean, Joe Puerto puertorriqueño. That's why we founded IG Block, right? Next up,
4: Alan. He's tall, wearing a suit and a bow tie. How are you
10: doing?
9: My name is
4: Alan.
8: Hi, Alan. My
9: name
4: is Aimee Montoya. Aimee Montoya? Yes. Muy bien.
8: I'm Alan Warwick. I'm from San Antonio, Texas. I'm a former city councilman, and I've been in a lot of meetings like this.
0: I'm here to give my talents and anything that I can do to help you make your dreams happen on this island. It is going to be a beautiful thing. All of these people have s- such good intentions, but you don't know that yet. And I'm no, not asking you to trust them. I
3: believe they that have people have good intentions.
0: And they are going to make that. something beautiful happen, and you're going to be a part of it, whether you like it or not. So <laughs> they're they're exactly. what? It's acto. It's,
9: it's, it's though, Whether it's, I like it or not. We happen. don't like it. We don't like it. That's <laughs> what, what we're saying? But, that
4: what I'm saying. Alan later apologized for saying that. But it was clear that careless phrasing in this tense environment was not helping things. And there were many flare-ups over this long session.
2: I am here in service. I've committed my entire life to the last breath in service. And they're here for the tax
5: breaks. But, and they're going to buy up a lot of land. Are you going to use really blockchain like to have me. land cooperatives in trust for people to have
3: affordable yes. Yes.
0: housing? Yes, yes, yes. 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 Get some of these uh, financial breaks.
3: So I don't want to help you I want to help you follow, because if you're here and I don't have a choice, then you better
10: follow. I don't know if the blockchain
9: community is really going to be a solution or a problem.
3: All of these big
9: cities, by the way, they love us there, but why? So I can live a a, a fancy life in New York? Because your agenda is to come live on our land, and you know what? It's not that we don't want you here. We want you here on our terms. I hear the pain that's going on in this room. Maybe you all don't belong here doing that. Just please consider that. The
4: session just ended in a somewhat haphazard way, with emotional discussions spilling out and continuing in the hotel bar. Michelangelo, along with other tech students from across the island, founded a non-profit organization called EduBlock, which, as the name suggests, is about blockchain education. He was a speaker on one of the panels earlier in the day. I found him at the edge of the hotel complex by the seashore. He looked a bit broken after a somewhat stressful session.
3: Uh, it was really intense.
4: Especially since it's um, Puerto Ricans and Puerto Ricans, two sides of the same coin, right?
3: Yeah, it's, um, that's the... That's the line we've been trying to deal with, you know, the most traditional people that um, don't understand the movement, but they do understand that there's a crisis and there are things that are happening. And, you know, and then you have the other side with the, with the more, like, millennials that actually dig this blockchain vibe. They know how we can use it to actually, like, help the island. And that's, like, the line.
4: Do you think that maybe the backing of... U.S. millionaires and people bringing investment from the United States might be the factor that is making people push back.
3: It is, it is, and they have all right to think this way, because Puerto Rico has always been mistreated, and they have. That's why, that's why I got so sad in there, because I actually felt their pain. I felt like my dad, his economic struggles. The reason why I'm here and why I'm not working overseas or I'm studying over there, which I can. It's because you know, I can't leave without you know actually helping my island. If I leave, I'm, I'm a traitor. As for Brock, I feel like he's in a stage in his life where he kind of woke up and said like, why do I need this, all this money, the things I'm doing? And he actually wants to actually feel like he's doing something that matters. But he just needs to understand way more how the community works. And I know he's open to it. Brock isn't a bad guy.
4: I also wanted to see how Brock had felt about the day of listening, given the reactions we heard.
2: I feel connected. You know, I mean, today was a day of listening, so today was about hearing all the opinions. And you're not always going to like the opinion. (laughs) You know, the the the, the narrative may not fit with yours. Sometimes you're going to find yourself, you know, with contrast. You know, there's 500 years of challenge and fear and anger and frustration. And those things also need to be represented. So uh, it was perfect. I'm not a leader. I, co- I think of myself as a first follower. I'm someone that sees people doing beautiful things and say, let me support that. And so, yeah, we want to involve all the leaders. I mean, this is a this is a Puerto Rican movement. You know, we're just here to help facilitate conversation and, you know, provide resources and things of that nature.
4: One person who can offer some interesting context on why locals might be suspicious of the recent arrivals is Mayra Santos-Febrez. She's a well-known author and intellectual focused on culture, gender, race, and Caribbean history teaching at the University of Puerto Rico. She explains the historical reasons why Puerto Ricans might be wary of this technology.
9: I think that the major problem is definitely a one of cultural translation, And it has to do a lot with uh, a historical reference that moves Puerto Ricans to mistrust bitcoins. And it was called La Libreta de Jornada. La Libreta de Jornada was something that a big uh, landowners used through the 19th century and first two decades of the 20th century in which there was, in fact, coins, that were produced in Puerto Rico in big, big uh, sugarcane plantations. And people were paid with those coins. But they could only use it in the stores and inside of this weird city that was also sort of like an a impri- like prison. You know, you couldn't go out. When people talk and think about bitcoins, they think they go back to that uh, indentured servitude and slavery and it raises flags, you know? So if you could uh, tell the story differently and and do a transferal of uh, knowledge to the people that are here, and also explain in that way what are the intentions and the plans, taking into consideration that memory of slavery, of exploitation, uh, people will get better received.
4: Transferring knowledge and getting the locals involved is something that Luis Garcia wants to do. Whilst Luis's day job is working at the family physiotherapy practice, Luis has developed a local cryptocurrency. We meet with
5: him at Sena, a local restaurant that accepts the coin. In my town, no one knew about Bitcoin, so I was like, well, this is an internet hobby. And you also created a currency yourself. Yeah, um, it's called Coqui Catch. Why Coqui? If you are a Puerto Rican, you know the Coqui. It's a small frog from Puerto Rico, it's an endemic species. Coqui, the name is because it sings like that. It says like. It's a type of patriotic symbol for us. I saw it as a way that maybe that will be a nice way to educate and make people understand what cryptocurrency is, and maybe start a movement locally. But after the hurricane, things changed dramatically. My thought was that maybe the cryptocurrency would work as a way to incentivize voluntary work. I got to meet different people that were very enthusiastic about the coin. And at the same time, all these cryptocurrency millionaire people started to rush into the island. It all got to be like a, the perfect soup. Luis plans to give half the cookie to locals and then encourage
4: the wealthy new arrivals to use it for their local purchases.
5: We can then create wealth for everyone that holds it. And in that sense, we can then interact in a local way, but having a global vision. And then people like Sonia,
4: who runs this restaurant, started getting interested. You can now pay for some of your bill in cookie. So how does this work? We are right now in a in a cafe and they do accept cookie cash as a payment method. So what Luis has done very nicely for us is to provide us with four hundred cookies. Right, what thank I'm you for pay.
5: ordering and your bill is fifty six cookies.
4: And we're gonna use Fifty-six of them to pay for are delicious carrot cake
5: and coffee. So, Luis, what I do now... It's simple. It's It works basically like a money transfer app, like PayPal or something like that. She has a QR code with an address, so... Yeah, you can scan it right here. Yeah, you, we scan the QR code. QR codes are those black and white square
4: patterns you see on some products and marketing material. You scan them with your smartphone, and they redirect you to information online, kind of like a shortcut.
5: That QR code converts into an address that you use to send the cookies. We just sent them, and we are seeing here the confirmation about the 56 cookies Mm -hmm. being sent to her address. That's it. That's it.
4: What led you to adopt, to be one of the early adopters of
9: cryptocurrencies.
3: What really interested me was this um, hold that the government has on us because of all the taxes I've been going through just to open up this business. So I just decided to take cryptocurrencies as a, a shot because they're just, I don't think it's fair they should get a piece of what we're working for when we're working so hard and it, you know it's just too much, they're pulling too much out of the pie of small entrepreneurs.
4: The polemic that this crypto movement has generated in Puerto Rico is likely to continue over the coming months and years. It's still early days for the technology and its proponents. Mayra and other people we talked to think that for things to work, the cryptopreneurs need to better listen to the community to help avoid the mistakes of the past.
9: The person-to-person connection is extremely important. There needs to be lots less leading and more connecting. It's not just, here I am, let me help you. That won't won't work.
0: (laughs) And that documentary came to us from the BBC's Raphael Ochaibe. And if you're interested in knowing more about Brock Pierce, check out the profile in Rolling Stone. It details his long business relationship with Steve Bannon when Bannon was at Goldman Sachs, how Brock Pierce employed 400,000 people to mine video games for him, and the sex abuse litigation that surrounds his early days. Check out the Brock Pierce profile in Rolling Stone for more info. After the break, I'll talk with an award-winning photojournalist from Syria. I'm Jerome McDonnell. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ, I'm Jerome McDonald. The war in Syria isn't in the headlines every day anymore, but it continues, and an entire generation of Syrian young people have grown up in that war. We're going to talk about an effort to put the focus on the children who've lived through the conflict and improved their lives with me is Basim Khabieh, and he's a photojournalist with Reuters. He's a past winner of the Overseas Press Club's Robert Capra Award for the Best Photographic Reporting Abroad for, and Requiring Exceptional Courage and Enterprise. And we're going to talk about his project, Witness to War, the Children of Syria, and he's joining us from Turkey. Thanks a lot for joining us, Ah,
11: oh, Thank you very much. Also with us
0: is my old friend Leslie Thomas, a human rights activist and curator and filmmaker, and she brought this idea to us. Thanks for joining us again, Leslie. Good to see you. You too. Thank you. How did you meet Bassem and, and get to know him and his work?
7: Um, in about 2014, when I was with the organization Artworks Projects for Human Rights, we began to curate an exhibition called Children of Syria, um, we wanted to, at the time the war was several years old, and, and at that time we were saying we now have years of children who are growing up, their formative years in this war, and we wanted to do an exhibition with photographers that would focus on the daily lives of minors. What happens? What, what happens to play? What happens to health? What happens to education, family life, work? Work Yes, children, when their families uh, have no means of income. So we reached out to a large number of photographers that we knew, and we started to put that together. However, something was missing, and we had just seen the first of what became many chemical attacks. And I knew that we had to have imagery of how this impacts children, but it was so hard to find an appropriate image of an inappropriate act. And I saw Bassam's work, and realized that it was his photos, not knowing that he was shooting his own people. He was documenting the children of his community, and, and I reached out to him. Um,
0: Bassem, can you tell us a little about yourself? It was not your, originally your intention to become a photographer at all. You were, you were in a different line of work.
11: Yeah, exactly. I, uh, before 2011, I was uh, uh, just a photo collector. Uh, not a photographer. Uh, My basic work was uh, an IT. I studied uh, computer science in Damascus University and uh, I worked as IT administrator in telecommunication company for five years. Uh, But I like photo. I uh, like to collect photo. I believe that uh, picture moving information from uh, in, in in different form, they they tell us the story without telling word, you know. Uh, so uh, when the revolution erupted in our country, uh, I believe that someone should uh, take responsibility to move uh, the picture of what happening in the ground to the world. Uh, because the syrian security uh, and syrian government banned the foreign journalists to come to syria and cover what's happening in syria we found ourselves uh face to face with camera with using camera we should uh use this tool to to document and to uh making picture uh to let world saw what's happening in Syrian conflict.
0: Bassem, it sounds, so how, like, it, it sounds uh, like the um, the conflict came right to you that you did not have to go far to document it. You just documented where you were.
11: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, the, the, the demonstration uh, was uh, in our street. Uh, in uh man, man man killed in in demonstration no one cover no one uh document what's happening so we start working with our uh mobile uh documenting and uh take picture for for what's happening.
0: And uh can you tell us a little bit about where you're from and how long you stayed in where you were
11: uh My hometown, uh, town is, uh, Duma. It's, uh, in Eastern Ghouta, near Damascus. Uh, I raised in that city. Uh, when I, as uh, an IT administrator, I moved to Damascus, but after the revolution erupted, uh, it was difficult to move between my hometown and my, and, uh, and Damascus. So I decided to left my work in 2013 and uh, start working as photojournalist. Uh, and I stayed in in my in Eastern Ghouta and in in Douma, in my city, for five years because our area was surrounded by Syrian army troops, and we subjected to uh, to siege for five years.
0: Now, can you um, explain to us what that's like to be in a siege for five years?
11: Uh, It's it's very difficult to to talk about siege because uh, everything changed. the 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 lifestyle is changed in in siege. uh medicine shortage there's there was no electricity no no fuel uh so we start uh, look for alternatives uh people start making fuel from plastic uh and they uh, start find another uh alternative for medicines for medical tools uh, people start finding other uh, Way for for moving water from place to place because there was no electricity, so uh, People start uh, Think different to adopt with with a new situation There's no no services no infrastructure for living just war and siege, and people uh, start to create and new tools to 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 uh, to adopt with this new situation
0: I'm talking with Basim kae he's a photojournalist he's a past winner of the overseas press club's Robert Kappa award and we're talking about uh, his project Witness to War the Children of Syria um, When did you start focusing on children when did you want to decide you wanted to make that a focus of your work
11: uh, actually the the Syrian uh, uprising start with the with with uh, a story with the children there is some children write in the in their school that it's it's your turn doctor it's mean that it's uh, it's time for changing Bashar Assad this is how it start when the security guys seeing this uh, uh, writing on the wall of schools they arrested the children and they subjected uh, them to abortion and to bortion kind of torture. Uh, this caused uh, uh, <coughs> this was the, the the basic reason of of the the start of the Syrian revolution. Uh, Syrian security arrest uh, children. Children was uh, tortured. And uh, the, uh, the 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 uh, people of Dara start revolution ag- against uh, Syrian regime because the regime uh, <coughs> arrest their children. This is how the revolution start. And uh, after seven years of war, we have a horrible statistic about the situation of of the children. Uh, more than 7 million children grow up uh, knowing nothing just war 2 in 30 children ha- uh, in 2 in, thir- in in 3 children have lost the uh, uh, one of their relatives uh, they lived in, in, in horrible situation their schools uh, bombed their streets bombed their house damaged by shelling. Uh, maybe half of Syrian children ha- uh, don't go to school, th- th- doesn't, th- they didn't go to school. Uh, <coughs> this is, uh, make, make me focus more on covering the situation of uh, Syria, of, of children of Syria.
0: I want to ask uh, Leslie Thomas here about the project here to support Witness to War, the children of Syria. There's a Kickstarter campaign, and you're trying to get uh, Bassam's photographs published in a book that would benefit the Karam Foundation.
7: Yeah, we felt that um, collecting this documentation, this incredible body of work that Bassam has created into a book that could be used for a whole number of purposes would be great. So, 21 more, 20, sorry, 19 days ago, uh, we launched this Kickstarter. Uh, there are 11 days left. We're very excited. And the goal is to create a book that will be used by the Foundation to support their work for refugees and IDPs and folks who are resettled to help policymakers around the world understand what is going on and hopefully intervene and provide support for the children in and out of Syria.
0: And with us is Lina Zara. She's a Syrian-American and the Community Program Coordinator of the Karam Foundation, which will, um, which will get the proceeds from the Children of Syria Stories and Photography book. Um, thanks a lot for joining us.
10: Thank you so much for having me, Jerome.
0: Um, it's great to see the Kerem Foundation again on the program. And um, tell us a little about the work you've been doing. You're working with refugees in Turkey mostly.
10: Yes. Uh, Kerem is a nonprofit based in the north suburbs of Chicago. Um, but our work is uh, scaling and impacting across four countries. We're committed to providing a better future for Syria through innovative education, sustainable development, and smart aid community Aid programs. We provide both short term and long term aid uh, in the hopes to uplift communities on the ground, whether inside Syria and as you mentioned, Jerome, uh, the bulk of our work being in Turkey. And so we work on the ground in Syria and have staff that oversee our projects and distributions. And a big emphasis is on school support but also humanitarian aid distributions.
0: I've really been impressed with the Karim Foundation and how they involve our community and people here in trips abroad and in, in helping out with refugees. Um, you've had the experience of working in refugee settlements in Calais and on the Greek Macedonian border. Um, well, how do, Explain what people get out of that experience and, and what, what meaning that brings.
10: Sure. Uh, for myself, as you mentioned, you know, I'm Syrian-American, um, but without that, previous you know personal connection or contacts um, you hear uh, you hear the statistics uh, you might hear testimonies um, but when you see firsthand uh, working with the communities on the ground, whether they're with beneficiaries themselves or the host communities, um, you see directly what the needs are asking people on the ground what do you need and it's a very um, uplifting um, and collaborative, uh, team effort um, that is just grassroots based and provides that supplemental context to really understanding what the situations are um, aside what folks might be hearing um, elsewhere.
0: Lena Zara is from the Karam Foundation. She works uh, with refugees from the Syrian civil war. And uh, also with us has been uh, Leslie Thomas, human rights activist, curator, and filmmaker. It's been great to see you again. Leslie, I understand you have a couple of quick mentions about other projects that have to do with Syrian Americans.
7: Yes, we're very excited. Artworks Projects will be hosting on September 26, along with the Case Art Fund, um, an exhibition of Omar Imam's work. And we'll have Karem and other folks there with us. Great time to learn about getting involved with the Syrian community here and supporting Syria's and then this Thursday, a new program that will touch on immigration and other refugee-related issues, Deported, is opening September 2nd. And October 2nd will be a follow-up program. Lots on the artworksprojects.org website.
0: Thanks very much for joining us again, Leslie Thomas. And thanks a lot to Basim Kabiya, photojournalist with Reuters and past winner of the Overseas Press Club Award, uh, Robert Kappa Award. And if you're interested in supporting his project, Witness to War, the Children of Syria, it's there's a Kickstarter campaign. Campaign, and if you put "Witness of War" in, uh, you will find the Kickstarter campaign with Bassam Kabia. Thanks a lot for joining us, Bassam. Thank you.
11: Thank you Mr. I'm
0: Jerome McDonald, and you've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ.
10: Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more.